Hey everyone, this is Josh McPherson, lead pastor of Grace City Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Whether you're a longtime Christian or just starting to ask questions about Jesus, I'm really glad you're here. I hope this message challenges you to think hard and moves you to respond in such a way that results in more freedom and purpose in your life. Enjoy the message. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 35. And as you turn there, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just uh, put, set this in context for us very quickly. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus has been uh, uh, laying some pretty serious things on the table here. In the first uh, 12 verses, he's, talk, he's talking about uh, that you shouldn't fear those who can kill the body. So don't fear, fear terrorists. Don't fear, fear you know, gorillas in, in the Amazon. You know, they could, they could kidnap you as a missionary and, and torture you and, and kill you. He says, fear the one who, after the body is killed, has the authority to throw your soul into hell. What he's saying is, 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 is don't fear man, fear the God of man. Because you won't give an account to man, you'll give an account to God. So it's a pretty heavy word. And in the middle of that word, a guy comes and asks, asks him a very shallow, materialistic, man-centered question. And it's, my brother won't split the inheritance with me. Tell him to give me my money. To which Jesus says, you know, boom. He kind of nails him between the eyes. We talked through that parable a few weeks ago. Mike and Tiffany Taylor shared their powerful story of losing their home in the fire and how that reset their heart around the th- things that matter. Um, and so there's a powerful uh, teaching there about money, that, that where your, your, your money is, there your heart is going to be, therefore be rich to Towards God, so how to deal with finances, how, how to view eternity, how to deal with money. And then in, chapter, in, in, in verse 22 through 34, he gives one of his most poignant, uh, um, detailed teachings on worry and anxiety. And he's saying, uh, uh, don't worry about you know, food and what you're going to wear, uh, um, but, 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 but center the focus of your attention on the kingdom of God. All these things will be given to you that, that, that you don't need to worry about. And so he's talking about eternity, materialism, greed, anxiety, and worry. These huge topics that, of course, none of you deal with, you know, I understand, but some of us, you know, mere mortals deal with on a regular basis, like losing perspective on eternity, fighting the, 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 the demon god of greed and materialism, constantly creeping into my life, and then constantly fighting, worrying about my present and my future and that, the anxiety that that causes. And Jesus loves us so much, and he knows us so well, that he's directing some of the, his primary teaching to those things you and I deal with most often, thanks be to God. Right, And so we have that happening here in the first 34 verses of chapter 12, and then he gets to this parable. And the reason I set that context for you in, 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 uh, before we read is because, one, interpretation is based on context. You can't interpret something rightly until you have the context around it that helps give uh, meaning to it. So, so we're setting that up. But secondly, I say that because I think what Jesus is going to teach here next is, in a way, his antidote to losing sight of, of eternity— of, uh, of greed and materialism and worry and anxiety. So if, if, if after these teachings you're thinking, okay, well, how do I keep a, a clear uh, perspective on eternity? How do I fight materialism and greed? How do I fight worry and anxiety and fear and all the, the hundreds of things that that sets off in your physical body and the, the physiological makeup of your body and the stress it can cause and, 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 and the psychological damage it can cause and the relational... If, 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 I want, if I want to fight against materialism and greed and a self-centered, world, worldly perspective and anxiety and, and, and worry and fear, how do I do that? Boom, Jesus is teaching here. I believe Jesus' teaching here is his antidote, is his answer to living a life shaped by eternity that's generous and free from materialism and greed and one that's, that's full of faith and trust in God, free from anxiety and worry. Here is his answer when we begin reading in verse 35. Be dressed or stay dressed and ready for service, or literally for action. Stay dressed and ready for action. It, it's, it, the tense of the verb that Jesus uses is, is this present tense active. It's, it means, it means you're, you're never not doing this. You're always being about this one thing. It's not a, a singular action that, hap- that happens at, at a point in time. It's an ongoing active behavior that you're continually living into. He's saying, he literally could be saying, always be being ready or be being dressed and ready for action and keep your lamps burning, whatever that means. We'll see. 
like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. Now, here's a twist in the story. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. And the second time he says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this. If the owner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into, which is like, so so he gives us, you know, uh, an injunction, be ready, always continually dressed for action, keep your lamp burning. And then he gives a story about, about a guy who went away to a huge wedding banquet and came back to find his servants anxiously and attentively waiting for his return, no matter whether it was a day or night. So we're kind of tracking there. And he says twice, it'll be good for the servants whose master finds them ready and waiting. And then he gives this little story, this little vignette about if, if, if the owner knew when the, a thief was going to come, he wouldn't let his house be robbed, which is kind of weird. And then he, he pulls it together with verse 40, where he says, you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So he's saying, you also like the servants and you also like the owner of the house who wouldn't let his house be robbed. You also like those two characters must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, here's what Peter says in response. Verse 41, Peter asks, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? <laughs> Don't you love that? He's like, he's like, should I be taking notes here or is this all just for those folks out there? <laughs> to which Jesus replies, the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowing at the proper time? So he, 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 he's setting it up with a question. Who is the faithful manager? And, and Peter is that he's answering Peter's question because of course, Peter wants to be a faithful manager in terms of, of how analogies, metaphors, and stories go. Like, so Jesus is saying, who is the faithful manager? And Peter's like, well, the, I don't know, but I want to be that guy. And then Jesus answers a rhetorical question. It will be the one, or it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming and then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day. And here's where it gets really encouraging. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces. Merry Christmas. I bet no, there's no, never been a pastor in the history of the world that's preached this on Christmas Sunday, you know? And then he will cut them to pieces. He will cut them to pieces. I just said that three times. Let's make it four. He will cut them to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Verse 47, the servant who does who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be, will be beaten with few blows. So he's given a, kind of a, a gradation here of, of, of punishment and discipline that will, be, that will be issued at the time of the master's return. And then he ties it together with this punchline. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Now, Question, how many of you in here, by a show of hands, as, as, as a public display of your current self-awareness, how many of you think you would be counted among the category of people who, to whom much has been given? Raise your hand right now. Praise God. Okay, we've got a pretty self-aware crowd. Here is why you are in that category. Think about all you've been given. Because some of you think, I haven't been given that much. I mean, I don't have much. Here's what you've been given. Right now, you have been given air in your lungs. Not your air. Not your lungs. You've been given a heart that continues beating. Not everyone has hearts that work. You have a mind that right now is working. Not everyone has a mind that works. You have friends, relationships, relational networks. You have a job. You have money. You have resources. You, maybe you have a car. Maybe you have a house. You have gifts, talents, dreams, abilities unique to you and your story. 
you have faith to offer and prayers that you could pray and experiences that you could make available. You have hands that could serve. You have ideas that could be given. You have problem-solving abilities that you could lend to serving the church rather than criticizing the church. You know people who are hurting you could love. You know discouraged people you could encourage. You know tired people you could build up. You know weary people you could pray for. You know lost people you could witness to. You have the gospel. You have the knowledge of the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. You have the knowledge that God is holy. We are sinful, but a way has been made to bridge the gap, namely the man Jesus Christ. You have way more at your disposal than you walked in here consciously aware of this morning. You are one to whom much has been given. And that needs to just weigh on us. As a church, we have access to resources and information and the internet. You have no excuse for lack of knowledge. You have no excuse for historical perspective that would help you know how to live now by studying the mistakes and wins of the past. You have no reason not to be encouraged and moved and motivated by the examples of great men and women in the past. We have freedom in, I think, the greatest nation in the history of humanity. Freedom to express religion, freedom to express our convictions freely without fear of of government repercussions. And yes, that is up for grabs right now. And yes, there are important discussions to be had, but let's not lose perspective that for a large portion of human history, many people were burned at the stake for things that you post freely on Facebook. We have so much more then we, are, we walked in aware of. And Jesus is saying to, much who, to the one that has been given much, a.k.a. to Grace City Church and to the people within the hearing of this sermon online, in a podcast, or in this room, much has been given and much will be requested, demanded. Isn't that crazy? Whoever thought Jesus was like this soft, weenie, pushover teacher has never read Jesus. To the ones who've been given much, much will be demanded, required of them. Have you ever thought of the fact that Jesus has demands on your life? (laughs) He has demands on your life. He has expectations and requirements for you. This is just heavy. Good Perspective giving, heavy. From everyone, and we, 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 we breeze over in our Bible reading, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, it's like, I think I heard that in a Spider-Man movie one time, you know? Too much has been given, much will be required. Poignant moment, cue the music, roll the credits, walk away. No, no, Jesus said, from everyone who has been given much, aka every person in this room, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And my presupposition and my assumption in this message is that you and I have been given much. And you and I have been entrusted with much, which means there will be much demanded and more asked of us. Which is why when someone has asked, is phase two your end game? I was like, phase two, phase one our end game? Are you kidding me? We're going to be doing whatever we can to build the kingdom of God. Like, as long as there is time on the clock and breath in my lungs, we're going to be working to grow as a church. Uh, someone asked Walt Disney, they, 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 said, they said, are you done building Walt Disney? And he, he, he said, as long as there is imagine left, imagination left in the human mind, Disney will ne- Disney's work will never be done. What a great line. What a great line. As long as there is breath in my, my lungs and ideas in my head, you know, we're going to keep building the kingdom of God. We're just getting started. People, people have talked to me about this church of building as the end game. As the end game, that's not even liftoff yet. We're just trying to build the rockets to get the ship off the ground. Then the mission starts. Thank you, ma'am. You got one amen there. <laughs> we'll work on the rest of the room. We still got a little more sermon here, so hang on. So, um, three things that I think God wants us to know from this text that are, are, are really embarrassingly simple, um, but hopefully helpful as things to think on and reflect upon on this last Sunday of not just 2019, but this last Sunday of, of the decade 
leading into the first Sunday of the next decade. Number one, Jesus is coming back. This is exciting. Now, I have nothing more to say than that. That's a big idea. That's a huge point that if you actually grad would radically change your world. So I feel compelled to say no more other than I have four minutes allotted for this point. So Jesus is coming back. Let's just think about it for four minutes, okay? Okay, I'll talk a little more, but you get the point, right? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with this teaching, let me just give you the quick background. Jesus came once to inaugurate his kingdom. Jesus will come a second time to consummate his kingdom. And his kingdom will not be you and I on clouds in togas. His kingdom will be the new heavens and the new earth where the creation as he intended it will be restored so that in in the garden when he, he placed us in his place, fellowshipping with him in perfect unity, we destroyed that. We, we, we bombed it, we nuked it, and there was a separation created. He sent Jesus to restore the means by which we could be reunited with our Father in relationship, and one day all of heaven and all of earth will be restored to his original intention, and we will be able to enjoy the original intention of God's design for us and all of creation together with him for eternity, and we'll explore, and we'll design, and we'll build, and we'll experience, and we'll taste, and we'll discover, and we'll will enjoy God's creation with him for eternity. That's heaven, and that's exciting. That's what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. And Jesus is coming back. And one of the most predominant teachings in all the New Testament is this reality that Jesus is going to return. 280 chapters in the New Testament, over 315 times Jesus' return is directly mentioned which is a pretty high ratio of concept or idea to verse count. And so one of the primary themes of the New Testament is that Jesus will return, which means Jesus assumes you having the perspective of his imminent return is going to help you with materialism, greed, worry, anxiety, fear, and losing eternal perspective. And so even though I feel like I've said it a lot, I'm saying it again because Jesus said it a lot and you and I need to remember it. Jesus is coming back. The problem becomes when you and I live as if he's not coming back. The the, the servants who were complimented in the story were those servants who were attentive to his return and excited for his return. They didn't know. Now, the second thing I should say that accompanies Jesus's consistent teaching of his return is that none of us know when it's going to happen, which is so funny when Christians take such a hard position on when Jesus is coming back, because the very nature of his return, according to Jesus himself, is that you won't know when it's going to happen. In fact, when you think it's least likely to happen, it will happen, is what Jesus says. And so eschatology is a fancy theological word for the end times teaching, the teachings surrounding Jesus' return. You know, are you, are you post-trib? Are you pre-trib? Are you no-trib? Are you lots of trib? You know, are you halfway trib? And I'm, I'm, I'm like, I don't think I trib. I don't think I care. It's, it's like people used to ask us all the time early on in the church. They don't much anymore because I stopped answering it, so I think they, they got the point. But they'd ask, what's your position on, 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 on this eschatological position? And, they, and I'd be like, my position is, is as follows. We believe with great conviction Jesus is coming back. After that, it gets a little fuzzy. <laughs> and we're totally okay with that. I have my, my conviction, my studied conviction on what I think could happen. But Jesus' details on what's going to happen are fuzzy intentionally because eschatology exists, the study, the teaching of, of the end times, exists not to give us details about the future, but to prepare us to serve God faithfully in the present. And eschatology gets goofy when it becomes so focused on the detail, we start living wrongly in the present. The purpose of, of the teaching of, of Scripture regarding eschatology is to give you and I perspective for right, faithful living in the present. What worry and anxiety does is worry focuses on things you can't control in the present and then false prophesies about the future and gets you off track. 
What faithful, faith-filled living does is it, is it looks to the one who controls things that are outside your control and then reflects upon your own life to focus your life doing and controlling and acting on things that are inside your control so that your hope in the future determines how you live in the present, which is why I think this parable is given as an antidote to worry and fear that Jesus addressed a few verses earlier. So the reason I think it's helpful to remind us as a church that, hey, just remember, everyone, Jesus is coming back is because eschatology helps us rightly live and know how to live in the here and now. Second thing God wants us to know is that you and I are stewards. I know, mind-blowing. I've never heard Josh say that before. I've said that seven million times from this pulpit. And Gus, who needed to be reminded of it again this week, me, In this parable, we see that Jesus assigns responsibility over his things to other people in the metaphor and the stories. He's entrusting them with the privilege and the dignity and the responsibility of overseeing that which is his. And here's what what you and I need, need to take away from this. Everything that you have is not yours, including the air in your lungs, including the lungs you're using the air, including the heart beating and pumping the blood, including the brain processing what I'm saying right now. Everything that you have in your life is not yours. It is his. Relationships, resources, money, time, energy, ideas, creativity, gifts, talents, abilities, all of those things are gifts from God on loan to you because he's a loving God, he's a good God, He loves giving his children gifts, and we take those gifts and we turn them into our own. This happens, you know, you you, you, you have little kids, you know, you you give a present to your kid and you spent good money, you know, on this present, right? And and, and this didn't happen this last Christmas. I'm saying like years ago when our kids were little and and, and full of sin, they've been fully sanctified now. (laughs) But you give a present and and they got a present and and, and, and then, you know, 15 seconds after the receiving a present they didn't know it was coming, they didn't earn money to pay for, they couldn't pay for if they wanted to, one of their siblings comes along and attempts to play with it, and what do they say? Hey, don't play with my present, my whatever, my, my, my thing, and, you're, and, you're, and, and instantly rising in me as a fully sanctified... Adam's laughing at me. As... <laughs> he goes, huh, yeah. As a, as a, as a, as a, someone in, in the process of sanctification, your Legos, you little turd, your Legos, you couldn't buy them if you wanted. You couldn't drive to the store where they're sold. You'd have no money when you get there, no car, no gas, no resources. I worked, slave, sacrifice, chose to give that to you graciously, and now you're hoarding it as your own rather than sharing the joy with your siblings. You spawn of Satan, get behind me, devil. Roar! You know, the, the wrath of God comes down on the head of my poor little five year old. You know what I mean? Like, ah! <laughs> A window into our more Christmas morning. So our kids know that none of the things in their house are theirs. They're dad's. Because I bought them. That's biblical. Right? Can I get it backed up on that over there, Elder Adam? Absolutely. And it's a picture for life, right? My relationships, my resources, my car, my money. The, 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 the toys don't change, they just get bigger. The whining doesn't change, we just sophisticate it more as adults. And the root of the problem stays the same. An owner mentality over a steward mentality. And here's what kind of struck me as I read this text in context uh, this last week. An ownership mentality brings anxiety. I've never met anyone who's full of faith and full of trust and full of peace that has an owner mentality of their stuff. I've met a lot of anxious people, a lot of fearful people who who have an owner mentality of their stuff, whether they know it or not. And ownership mentality breeds anxiety. Now, here's here's my caveat. By ownership mentality, I don't mean as a leadership character quality. We talk ownership all the time as a team. 
Take ownership of your responsibilities, your spiritual progress, uh, the, the progress of those around you. Men, cut and carry your own firewood. Take responsibility and ownership for your home, your culture, your attitudes, your marriage, your family. I, I, I tell men all the time, like, it's not my job to love your wife, to raise your kids, to set the spiritual temperature in your home. That's your job. I want to encourage you, strengthen your hand, call you out, build you up, give you an example, learn with you together. But I don't want to do it for you. It's your job. You should own that. You should, you, should, you should have just this high level of extreme ownership, right? all the buzz phrase right now, to take responsibility to do your stuff with God's stuff. So I'm not saying that kind of ownership mentality. I'm saying an ownership mentality in, in terms of this is my life, my stuff, and no one has a right to say about anything about how I, I do it. That mentality breeds anxiety. A steward knows both peace and reward. Because a mark of the servants that God acknowledges as faithful in the text had both peace and they all received reward. I I would say the person beating up the servants and getting drunk didn't have a whole lot of peace in his life and ended up not getting very much of a reward. Why? Because he said, suppose my servant says to himself, see, there's an insight in human, in, into, into human psyche. You talk to yourself all the time. You have conversations with yourself all the time. You say self, and then you tell yourself something. And to the degree that it came from here, it's right. To the degree that it came from your own head, it's probably wrong. Which is why you should do far less talking to yourself and far more listening to Jesus talk to you. He said to himself, self, my master is taking a long time in coming false presupposition, meaning since because he's taken a long time in coming, he won't come back soon, a.k.a. I can do whatever I want with his stuff and mine, life. And so he treats all the, all the master's things like his own, and he's misusing it and abusing it, and in the middle of that misuse and abuse, guess who comes back? The master. And does he say, hey, you know what? You're a product of your circumstances and the political environment you grew up in and the, and, and your edu- the educational system and your teachers and your coaches. Uh, uh, no big deal. I'll go punish them. No, no. What Jesus said is, you dirty bird, you failed to take heed to my words that says I would come back and you're responsible for your life. Therefore, the punishment is, since you did not take seriously my stuff and my gifts and your responsibility, I'm going to cut you up and throw the pieces of your body away with the unbelievers and those who are outside my house. Now, that's pretty harsh. That's what Jesus teaches. We're growing up in a culture that, that, that doesn't know how to take responsibility for their own actions. It's everyone else's fault. Did you hear it in the testimony last week with Chris Scott? I was waiting for my wife to change, my kids to change, my work to change, my brother to change, my dad to change. And it wasn't until I realized Jesus wanted to change me that healing began to to flow. And the refreshingly honest teaching of Jesus is it's not the government's fault or the school's fault or your parents' fault or your coach's fault, your friend's fault. You are responsible, not for what's been done to you, but how you respond to it. And the dignity of Jesus is that he doesn't let us off the hook to blame others and to play the victim. He says, no, you're responsible for your own life. Aren't you grateful for that? There are no victims in the kingdom of God. Only victors walking in the power of Christ. Our culture has given far too much power to other people. Churchill once said, and I'm going to butcher this. I'm, I'm reaching back a little bit. Something effective. You'll never get to where you want to go if you stop and throw rocks at every dog that barks. That didn't quite come out right. (laughs) He said it better, I'm sure. The point being, if you're constantly being outraged and distracted by other things, things other than where you're supposed to be going, you'll never get there. And we live in this outrage culture. In part because people have lost the ability or the willingness to take responsibility for their own life. To what Jesus says, that's kind of the the heart of the show here. I'm coming back and you're a steward because then he goes on to say this, there will be an accounting. There will be an accounting. Steward comes back, the owner comes back, finds his servants ready. What's the reckoning? Reward. 
he turns himself into the posture of a servant and he serves the very servants he's hired to serve him. That's amazing. And the other one gets cut to pieces and thrown out with the unbelievers. Now, lots of theological debate over this is, does this mean salvation is by works? Does this mean we can lose our salvation? And they get lost in these theological weeds. So let me say this uh, very clearly. I I don't know if that's the point of the text here. I have a a study conviction, and and it comes from more of a systematic theology, not necessarily from this text alone, but it is this. Jesus loses none of his children. You can't lose your salvation. That's an idea incongruent with the consistent teaching of Scripture. Jesus says, I don't lose my children. My children are my sheep, and my sheep are my own, and I don't lose them. I keep them. Just like I can't lose any kids. My kids can grow up and rebel, walk away, shun me, but they'll never not be my kids. They'll always be my kids. If you're a child of God, you can't be lost, but you can pretend you're a child of God when you're not. That comes from other teachings of Jesus, right? On that day, they said to me, Lord, Lord, I thought we knew you. He'll say, depart from me, I knew you not. John, in his epistle, said it like this. They went out from us, I mean, they left us, but they were not of us. I think that's what's happening here. They pretended to be a Christian. They pretended to be a steward. But when God actually gave them something to steward, they proved by their lack of stewardship that they were not a steward to begin with. They had no love for, no respect for, no fear of the master, nor any anticipation of his return. Therefore, they proved by the nature of their mindset, their self-talk, and their actions that they weren't a child of God. They weren't a steward. They were there as a, as a fraud. Because our actions will betray our heart's posture. And if your actions are one that says, I, I care nothing about stewarding God's gifts, then were you ever a steward to begin with? I think that's the teaching of the text. So there will be an accounting. So three themes that are consistently taught in the New Testament here in this text. Jesus is coming back. You and I are stewards. And there will be an accounting. There it is. End of the year. Review 2019. Did you live in such a way as to not be shocked if Jesus returned? Did you live in such a way as to see all of your life as a sacred stewardship of God's resources given and entrusted to you? And are you living so as on that day when there is an accounting, you'll be ready for it and it'll be a day of reward, not punishment. I think that's a really helpful grid to think about the new year, don't you think? How do I fight greed, materialism, self-centeredness, lack of eternal perspective, constantly being worried and and, and fearful and, and anxious? Remember today and then resolve to tell yourself every day, Jesus is coming back. This isn't all of the story. I've been entrusted to use whatever I can to his glory, for his purposes. And I'll give an account for what I did with it. That instantly infuses all of the moments of your life, whether you're a single mom or a stay-at-home mom or, or a janitor at a school or a CEO of a huge company. Every moment of your life has meaning, intrinsic value and meaning because you're taking what God gave you, not what you got, but what God assigned to you and here's what's so cool is we, we often think, well, that person has a ton of money over there. Or that person has a ton of responsibility over there. Or that person has a ton of this or that. So, so, so they, I hope they do well with it. I don't have that much. No, 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 no. God's not looking at it like that. God's saying, well, you have what I've given you. And the question is, what are you doing with it? Which means it's a level playing field for every person in the room. There's no socioeconomic status in God's kingdom. It's faithful stewards or unfaithful frauds. That's the line. What's the point? Jesus takes our stewardship of his things very, very seriously. And you say, how seriously? Well, he cut to pieces the one who didn't take it seriously. <laughs> That's pretty serious. You know, it's like, well, does it mean he can lose our salvation or just get less reward? I'm like, I don't think I want to find out. I don't want to be the cut to pieces guy. Look how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians. This then is how you ought to regard us. 
as servants of Christ and of those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He's talking about the apostles planting churches. He's saying, here's how you should view us, which is how I think you should view you. I think you could put, lump yourself in with Paul, not that you're all apostolic in your gifting, but all of you have been entrusted with the mysteries of Christ. You all have either heard the gospel or possessed the gospel, and there's an accompanying responsibility that comes with it. Now it is required, required, not suggested, required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Boy, how would your life change if you had that resolve in your bones this year? Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Helpful self-awareness. Why is this? He's he's saying it because, because he's like, well, look what he says. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. What's he saying? He's saying, to the best of my knowledge, I'm doing what, I'm, what I believe I'm supposed to be doing. But that doesn't mean I'm doing it perfectly. I'm giving room for error here because I'm a sinner. He's talking about, I may have blind spots, which is why I need to live in community, which is why I need to live submitted to authority, which is why I need to, to, to soak my mind in the word of God, which is why I need to be in church under the word of God, living in community, because my blind spots I'm not even aware of, but will be held accountable for, I, be, I better get them out in the light. Because God's my judge. Look what he says. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. There it is again. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So what does Jesus want you to do? Three things very simply will be done. Number one, watch. Look at the story. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door to him. What's the picture? The picture is like when I come home from work and nine times out of 10, I come home and the house lights are on and people are bustling. There's a fire in the fireplace. There's something that smells good in the oven. And I open the door, dad's home, dad. Hey, how was your day? I did this. And it's talk and it's, and I love it. You know, you know, I come in the corner and that's, that's Amelia. Actually more like, that's Amelia, you know? And then, and, and, and then it's, that's LMA, right? And then Levi, you know? And you get in, hey, Dad! You go, hey, Dad! I always know how their day went if one of them doesn't show up. Hey, where's Gideon? He's around the corner. Why is that? Well, he wasn't too excited about you coming home. Tells me all I need to know. But most of the time, it's face to the windows. That's how God wants to come back. He wants to come back to the people at church going, We knew you were coming back! Because you told us you'd come back. We didn't know when. Would it be 5, 5 36, before dinner, after dinner? But we knew you'd come back, so we were waiting. Because we're so excited to see you. Stay attentive. Stay attentive. Secondly, stay awake. Look what he says. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve them, recline them at table, and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, waiting, awake, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. What's he saying? Stay watchful, stay attentive, stay waiting by staying awake. He's saying there's no excuse for you to go, it's five o'clock, I'm, I'm off the clock, I'm going to my servant quarters. If he shows up at 6.30, you know, no drinks for him, sorry, uh, this is my time off. There's no time off as a believer. Jesus says, whenever I come back, I better find you watching and waiting, and then lastly, working. Stay active. Be dressed Ready for action. Verse 43, it will be good for the servant when the master comes, finding him doing his will when he returns. So this year, what would it look like for you to be watchful and attentive 
for you to be waiting in an awake posture and for you to be working hard by staying active. In other words, you need to live a life that burns the midnight oil. You need to live a life that burns the midnight oil. You heard that? I, that might be where this phrase, that phrase comes from. You ever heard that phrase? You know, what's that guy doing? Oh, he's burned the midnight oil. What did you do yesterday? Burn the midnight oil. How should we live as a church? Burning the midnight oil. Yes, rest. Yes, vacation. Yes, margin. Yes, all those things. But all in the context of burning the midnight oil. So let me give you four words, and then I'll be done. Four words. Plain Joe Studios, when, when, they, when they started uh, helping us design you know, space making for our new facility, they said, help us find out about who you are. And they gave us a four-page questionnaire. We filled it out, uh, and I wrote about almost 30 pages of, of I just read it last night, and, 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 and sent it back to them. They said, well, thank you. That, that was thorough. <laughs> and uh, and, and um, in it, they said, what are some words that describe uh, uh, your culture? And I gave them words. I gave them like 20 words, and then I wrote a paragraph about each word in concert with you know, Pastor Adam and brainstorming some things. And I, I want to give four of those words to you today. Because these words are words that we want to, to be true of us as a church. The first word is intentional. We don't do anything half-cocked or just because. We think, brainstorm, prepare, wrestle, plan, and execute with intentionality. We know what we want and we go after it. We think everything through in advance. We consider all options and we want to be clear and specific in our actions and direction. We, but we don't overthink things, nor do we get paralyzed by not knowing all the facts. We are totally okay with free willing on the fly and going with the flow. We believe a good plan executed today is better than a perfect plan not ever gotten to tomorrow. And we believe a good plan should get thrown out the window if the moment demands it. But still, we plan. We don't want to do lots of things half-heartedly. We want to do a few things really, really well. We experiment a lot and change things up a lot, and that is intentional as well. We're intentional with experimentation. We're intentional about innovation we're intentional about being intentional. Second word, excellence. We have no tolerance for shoddy work. Half-hearted effort is the cardinal sin of our team. Everyone has a desire to do what we do as best as we can do it. We feel no need to hold ourselves to someone's standard, but we can care very much about meeting our own standard, meaning we run our plays, we play our game, we do our thing, and we do it to the best of our team's ability. We don't pursue arbitrary standards. We pursue the best standard we can produce. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. We don't do everything, but what we choose to do, we will do with all of our might. We don't do anything half-cocked or just because. We think, brainstorm, prepare, wrestle, plan, and execute with intentionality. We don't step onto the field until we have a plan to win. We know what we want and we get after it. We think everything through in advance. We consider all options. We make the best strategic plan, and then we execute it with zealousness. We take great joy in doing whatever we do as best as we know how to do it for the glory of our worthy and watching and returning king. Third word, urgent. We love to inspire action, to move people from where they are closer to Jesus, to call people out of apathy and into action, out of indifference into difference making. We don't sit around and stare at our navel. We don't like people staying stuck. We want to mobilize and move people in their journey with Jesus. It's not about how fast we're running, but what direction you're going. It's not about where you're at, but where you are headed. We want to be known for our active, visible, action-oriented faith. We want a faith that moves us and motivates us and mobilizes us to run, give, live, act, spread, speak, write, teach, print, publish, preach, proclaim, serve, and then give some more. We don't want to, we want to wring our lives out and spend our lives living for God's glory. There will be no dilly-dallying on our watch, no dragging of the feet, no reticence, no hesitation, no double clutching, no grumbling, slouching, or sloughing, no mechanical obedience here. Let the culture of Grace City Church be one of eager and joyful obedience to Jesus Christ, and let it start with us. We acknowledge that redemption is a process and restoration is a journey. And we have a passion to call more people into that journey. We want to call more people to get on the change train because it's rolling out of the station and into a better future new creation. So get on board or get out of the way, but change is the way we're rolling today. I didn't mean to make it rhyme, it just rhymed. These, 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 are, these are phrases that, that were written at reflecting on who we want to be and who I think God's making us into being. Last word, 
Intentional excellence, urgency, passion. Deep, compelling, enthusiastic conviction. All in with all that we are. Fifth gear, foot on the gas, charisma, enthusiasm, go big or go home. All in with everything we do. All our chips on the table. No hedging the bets. No half-hearted effort. Take a swing. Get on the field. Put on a jersey. Hit somebody. Fail forward. One shot. Rest in heaven. Let's do this. This kind of hunger and attitude is in the bones and ethos of everything about Grace City Church. Cut us and we bleed passion. We're not just messing around. We're not just filling time. We're not just taking up space. We want it to matter that we were here. We want Jesus to get a lot of glory from the lives we live and the things we do. No wasted breath, breath. work hard, rest well, do things that matter on teams that win. We're willing to suffer to see it come to pass. We're in, burn the ships. We're here to stay. The calling is deep. The vision is clear. The moment is now. We are going to live for the glory and fame of Jesus and give our best energies and ideas and efforts to that reality. We're going to run hard. We're going to work hard. We're going to dream big. We're going to go big. We're going to leave it all in the field and that aroma will roll off the pulpit every week and it pumps through the heart of every leader on the field in the game at Grace City Church. Yeah. Why? Because we believe three simple things. Jesus is going to come back. We've been called to be stewards, not just of our time and life and money and resources, but of the gospel itself. And there will be an accounting of reward and punishment for faithfulness or unfaithfulness accordingly. That just drives us. And if, 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 that's, too, if, that's, if that's too intense for you, uh, you know, I, I get it. Like, that's okay. But like, you won't roll here well. Because we're just all in. That's the only way we know how to do it. Half that stuff, Adam was just riffing in my office. I couldn't type fast enough. Just bump us and it comes out. Because I don't want to be caught with my proverbial pants down when Jesus comes back. I don't mean anything crass. I just mean like, oh, oh, you're back? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I want to be ready. He's here, he's here. Woo! You ever had a guest show up early? You don't want to ever feel like that when Jesus comes back. You ever shown up at the babysitter? You left for two hours. Two hours, right? You come back, the house is destroyed. The kids have all regressed to Satan worshipers. Hair everywhere, diapers everywhere, dishes everywhere. It's 10.30, they're all awake, they're all crabby, and, 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 and the babysitter's on the couch reading a book or watching a movie. That happened once. Never again. Or you've come back and it's like, Peace in the home, dishes done, house clean, kids in bed, a godly just spirit in the home, things in order, ready for your return, lights on, good to see you, Mr. McPherson. How was your time? You could have stayed longer if you wanted. Great. And you're like, we came back early, and you're like, this is amazing. That's where I want to be. So, when I outlined this series about six months ago, I, I, I wrote down a kind of a line or a tell-off, a purpose statement for each parable. This is what I wrote six months ago. I read last night. I thought, oh, that, that's pretty good. Here's the point of this parable. Life is short. We've got a job to do. The master's coming back soon. It's time to get to work. And just for the record, lest anybody think the goal is to get out to our property and then rest. The goal is to get into our new home so we can really get to work. I, I, I don't want anybody coasting in their giving, in their serving, in their praying, in their evangelizing, in their leaning into the things of God, in their pursuing of coworkers and friends and teammates. When we get out there because, oh, we're home. We're not home out there. 
We just relocated our base of operations. We will be home one day, but we're not home yet. Life is short, friends. We've got a job to do. The master's coming back soon. It's time to get to work. So the question is, how do you live in an inattentive, awake, active life that Jesus would find pleasing and would reward? That's the question, right? That's the question you should be asking right now as a new year, new decade rises on the horizon. And because I'm your pastor and because I love you, I'm going to give you the answer. Isn't that great? You're welcome. Here's the answer. Come back next week. I'm going to preach a whole four-week series on how not to waste your life. It's going to be awesome. We'll start next week. Hope to see you there. Father, as we wrap up this year, we pray that you would help us to be like the men who understood the times and knew how they should live, to count carefully our days and how we live and what we do with them. Lord, would Grace City Church collectively as a whole be a people that you find busy at work when you return? You find joyfully awaiting the master's return, whether it be in the middle of the night or the, or, or the middle of the day, faithfully stewarding all that you've given us, both individually in our lives and collectively as a whole. And Father, would there be three truths that hang like, like three bright suns in, 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 in the sky of our, of our reality. Jesus is coming back. I am a steward of all that is his, and he will give an account to dole out reward and blessing or curses and punishment. And Father, may we be those that live for the reward of heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Here's what we're going to do. We've got a few minutes left. We're going to end our time. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to one of, uh, one of my dearest friends and one of my favorite, most favorite folks here at Great City Church. And there's a lot of them. Um, this is a man I've known most of, if not all of my life. I think actually all of my life, most of my life. And uh, he serves on our ESAT team, Elder Support Advisory Team. He's been one of the nine or 10 or 12 men that have been helping us make decisions regarding resources and finances and property and building. And he's lent his time and wisdom experience to that end, making sure that we're using those resources wisely. And he's given much of his time to that, which I'm grateful for. He's a wise man, a godly man, one of the first men that came to mind when I thought, who do I know that's living with their life with a sense of urgency? So please welcome to the stage my dear friend and your uh, fellow family member, uh, Mr. The Esteemed. Uh, Reverend Pastor Bishop Dave Hale. Come on up, Dave. Give him a hand. Woo! Hey, I hope you enjoyed this message today. If you did, there's a couple things I'd love for you to do. First, like and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. That way, the most recent message from Grace City will always be waiting for you at the top of your feed. Secondly, if this ministry has encouraged you and you'd like to help us reach more folks, you can do so by giving a gift to our ministry so we can continue making these resources available for free. Just go to gracecitychurch.com slash give. Thanks for listening. God bless.